Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is Tug. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, be me up. Resistance is futile. They're long and prosperous. You boldly go where no man has gone before. And welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis, author of several sci-fi novels, many of which have become Amazon top 100 bestsellers, with some finding their way into the top 10. He speaks multiple languages, plays several instruments, and expresses his creativity through drawing, painting, sculpture, and music but still considers his marriage to Tahira Yasmin his greatest accomplishment. It's Daniel McMillan! Yeah! Daniel McMillan! (laughs) (laughs) How you doing, man? I'm great. How are you? Oh, man, I am very well. Thank you so much for carving out the time. Uh, Yeah, yeah, uh, you were very kind enough to uh, send me uh, one of your books, and I started diving into it. we're not going to beat around the bush. We're just going to jump right in here. Uh, and uh, man, is it fascinating. Um, the one, because I keep, <laughs> my wife keep at, keeps asking me, what's the title again? And I keep mispronouncing it. So here, for the record, the one that you sent me is, just try again, Todd. You'll get it. Tritonus. The Tritonus Venture. The Tritonus Venture. I'm yeah. <laughs> I have yeah, had but, some trouble yeah, because it happens on this artificial island. I was thinking of like Triton, yeah, like it's not a musical reference of a, a tritone, which yeah. I had to, had a couple of people write to me and go like, "Why does this have all this musical?" It was like, "No, no, 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 Triton, yeah, God of the Ocean," and yeah, it, man, it's <laughs> it, it reminds me of <laughs> movies like The Island and really scott's alien and a little bit of blade runner i mean it's i mean i'm i i haven't finished it just yet but i'm so i'm i'm just on the outside edges of it but man it's so good uh i'm glad you're enjoying it yeah thank you that's so what i write much. for um let me ask you at what point in your nerdum in your fanboy life did writing your own narratives come into uh come into view for you like was it was it was it pre-star trek or uh, like at, at what age or was it high school college <laughs> um well you know what i've always written uh since i was a kid and uh as a matter of fact i remember being like about 12 years old i guess on a camping trip with my parents at this beautiful lake and spending the brunt of the summer in the trailer rewriting what was basically star wars right Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, stuff like that. And, you know, there's creative writing in school and all that kind of stuff. But uh, in terms of like writing as a thing, I uh, I didn't actually publish my first book until I was uh, 49 years old and I'm 53 now. So it's only been like five years. But since then, I've been pumping them out. Like I, 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 I just because I can't stop writing, you know, uh, yeah. 
So I tend to write about four novels a year. Wow. And, uh, that is yeah, awesome. Because I can't stop. But you know what, though? Uh, to get Getting started in it, um, I'm a big believer in try everything. You know, like if you get a, if you feel a, an inclination to try something or you get this idea and you, 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 you know, act on that, you know, like, and try it out. And uh, so I've done a lot of different things. Like I, I played music professionally for a while. Um, I did paintings and I did commission work uh, as a painter. And um, I, I can play music, but I know people who are, who are like musicians and I'm not that. And I know people who are artists and I'm not that either. And so I had gone through a whole bunch of things, just trying stuff out. And I did sculpture and I did, you know, and I can sculpt too. And I, I, I do a lot of other things too. Um, but when I found writing, it was like the idea starts in my head. It's my idea. I, I came up with it. And it goes from the seed of an idea to expanding it into a story where it's actually something that's happening to characters and people. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it goes into like, okay, now I've got it a little more outlined and it's ready. And then I end up and the whole thing came from and originated from my own you know, there's no external forces at play. And that's kind of the, the draw. Like, I just love the creativity of it that I own it from top to bottom, left to right. You know, that's, it's all mine. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, you know, in looking at, uh, you know, talking about when you get those urges to create something, I think, yeah. and I've spoken about it a couple of times here on the show, um, you know, after that first wave of the pandemic, you know, things started to open back up because when the pandemic hit, like all the stand-up mm -hmm. comedy open mics shut down, like, oh yeah, right, of full course. stop immediately. <laughs> um, and then after that first wave, a couple things started to open back up and there was this flood of people who had been sitting at home watching Netflix stand-up specials. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> every mic was flooded with new people and it was kind of, the veterans sitting in the back watching, okay, here's another new baby bird about to jump <laughs> out of the nest. Let's see how they do. And yep, uh, it's fun because you kind of get to see, you kind of get to see the germ of an idea and let that build into a premise. And then that premise starts to expand and take shape. Then you're, you're also bouncing off the audience. And I always tell people like, in terms of writing stand-up, I can sit at home and write stand-up all day long. And that's great. But the editing process is such a big part of it. And I'm sure it is for mm -hmm. you as well. Um, mm -hmm. You really don't start to see fully formed bits or fully formed specials, for lack of a better term. Um, you really don't start to see the fully formed piece as a whole until you right. start hitting those open mics and you start testing them out and like oh this this thing doesn't work the way i worded it got to take it back to formula and work it again and all totally. the all the pieces are there now we just have to rearrange it we actually spoke a lot uh before we got rolling about the structure and order of a narrative can affect it in such dramatic ways. I mentioned uh, Chris Nolan's Memento. Um, yes. si since talking with you, like Quentin Quentin Tarantino, huge on yes. you know telling the narrative out of out of order to get a bigger, better response. And uh, 
where did you where did you find your structure in terms of how you tell a story as opposed to just a straight linear narrative like was was there any one particular inspiration to kind of tell the story differently for lack of a better term in the book that you're reading, yeah, absolutely. In the Tritonis venture, um, I had the whole, I had the entire story laid out, and it was all, you know, it started at the beginning, went through all, you know, the rising tension, everything, you know, leading toward a satisfying ending. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I was looking at the story, I I put each little scene on a card, and I lay all the cards out on the table so I can see my entire story in one place, mm -hmm. and just kind of scan through it and and have the story play out in my head. And when I was doing that with it in laid out that way um everything was there and it was a good story but it wasn't it there was something missing it wasn't uh, didn't have that pop that i wanted and i knew that it was in there somewhere and so um i actually uh found uh inspiration in uh, the haunting of hill house because they went through some of the scenes where they would show certain things happening to certain characters and they would see you know like the, the mother doing something crazy in her bedroom and they just kind of go you know, like mom, and they'd snap her out of some reverie that she was in, and it was weird. Um, but then when they went back through that and showed it through mom's eyes, and that's when you find out that she was standing there looking at these ghosts and having a conversation with them, and her kids coloring her snapped her out of her, this thing. And so I thought, you know wow. what, that's something that I can try. Uh, not everything you try works out, right? So I went, okay, I'm going to take this from, because they're, uh, it's a kind of an ensemble cast in the book. And so it was like, okay, let's start with this character, run them through up to a certain point where they're, you know, where they're kind of developed and that's done, you know, up to that point. Yeah. And then let's go back to uh, day one of the story and look at it again through the eyes of another character. But you would see this, the first character kind of uh, through another character's eyes now. And I did that. Uh, the, the book is in five parts and the first three parts um, are three sets of characters going through their emotions. And then when you arrive at, at part four of the book, all the players are in one place at the same time. They're ready to rock and roll. Everybody's primed. Everybody's had this unbelievable crap happen to them. And it's time for all hell to break loose. Wow. And so parts four and five are how that plays out. Oh, I'm so looking forward to, uh, to diving into uh, <laughs> Tritonis venture uh, so much more. Uh, it's, it's definitely going to be living on my tablet and my phone for for, <laughs> for the duration. Absolutely. Uh, but let me, cause we've talked about on this show, we've talked about how um, an enterprise specifically, I think mm. really could have benefited from, I'll say more diversity in the writer's room. And of course, diversity in the writer's room can take many different forms, but I specifically think, you know, it really probably wouldn't have hurt them they're shooting in Hollywood, go over to the comedy store, poke your head in the door and go, Hey, we need some writers for star Trek. Like you will have more than you can shake a stick at. Um, <laughs> Room full of hands goes up. Oh, me, me, me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, all uh, Trust me. All the comedians, they're all nerds. <laughs> it's, we can smell our own, <laughs> but uh, you know, also they also have some great uh, tech writers, you know, it's, Oh yeah, I'm working on Star Trek. Well, I retired from NASA. What? <laughs> okay. So they've got that going for them as well. And when you're looking at the different types of storytelling in Enterprise specifically, there's been multiple instances of this particular episode is so damn close 
to a horror movie. Uh, I know, uh, right. I think fight, uh, fight or flight, uh, very early in season one, Hoshi walks into a room where a bunch oh, of bodies are hanging bodies. from the ceiling. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after the minefield, they go to dead stop. Uh, they go to that little, um, uh, basically a repair station, a fully automated repair station. And it's right. not, and they're like, man, this is awesome. It's just creating food and automatically fixing the ship and all this, that, and the other thing. And then Travis Mayweather disappears. And <laughs> well, <laughs> what happened? And then they find the room of bodies again of like, yeah, we're using the brain power of all these different, all these different species and all these different individuals to power this station. It's like, oh my God, that's terrifying. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, do you, when, well, first of all, what was your introduction to Star Trek? Do you recall? Was it a particular show or particular episode? Um, yeah, you know what? I can remember exactly because uh, I grew up on a little farm in northern Ontario uh, up here in Canada. And um, we only got three channels and uh, one of which was the French channel. And so we were really limited in what we had to watch. And so uh, we didn't have Star Trek, uh, the original series, and like it wasn't available on the channels that we had. Mm. So uh, it wasn't until I moved out and uh, uh, was going to college and I was boarding with this family and uh, Next Gen was just starting. And so he was like, you know, like, we've got to watch this. And I, of course, I knew what Star Trek was and I had read some comics and stuff too, you know, uh, yeah. so it wasn't completely... Uh, you know, I knew what it was and, and who the characters were and what they were about. And uh, so got into watching Next Generation with this uh, with this guy that I was boarding with and uh, thought it was really cool and then kind of went looking for more, you know. And so went back and rented, uh, you know, back in the blockbuster days, got, uh, you know, some of the original, uh, yes. the original series stuff or whatever and the little uh, cardboard pop open cases there. With yeah. The, oh, yeah, man, I those? forgot about those. Oh, <laughs> yeah. wow. <laughs> a little pop it's like yeah and so uh and went back and watched some of those and uh and and ju it just kind of grew from there and i haven't i haven't enjoyed all the incarnations and i know some people are uh you know not too uh especially tr uh, people who are into star trek uh, that when i say that uh, deep space nine wasn't my favorite couldn't really get into that you know yeah. but uh but i did like um i did like next generation um my wife uh, is a huge voyager fan and so uh, we watched uh, we watched that here. Nice. And uh, yeah, yeah. I uh, so it's it's so. Do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself a TNG guy versus TOS? Because it's more usually, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah more it's, so. It's usually it's kind of like Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Like, are you <laughs> are you a Joel fan or a Mike fan? Like, uh, you Joel know, all the way. Yeah, yeah. And Star Trek, <laughs> Star Trek seems to be the same way of kind of like usually it was the first one you were introduced to. That's your crew. I'm definitely yeah. a TNG kid. So it's fun. It's fun to hear that you're a 53-year-old TNG kid. Uh, <laughs> I, I I dig that, man. I dig yeah. that. That's awesome. Well, that's what like uh I'm still a huge uh Roger Moore Bond fan, as cheesy as those movies were. Nice I'm a huge Bond fan. And uh, yeah, uh, Roger Moore and uh, my number two would probably be Pierce Brosnan. But uh, yeah, I love watching the old, uh, the old Moore just because it was the ones that I watched first with my dad. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's in there. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, it's so funny uh, on the other show that I'm on cinema shock where we cover uh, genre film history. A lot of the things that we've been watching, especially from the, 
eighties and nineties, uh, I was actually introduced to them on television. Uh, you know, has right. been has been formatted to fit your screen. This that yeah, and with, <laughs> with commercial breaks and things like that. But speaking of James Bond, the one that I watched the most was uh, Never Say Never Again, which is the one that is considered not a James Bond movie. And, right. But it's got yeah. Kim Basinger from Batman. Yeah. I'm a big Batman fan. So Kim Basinger is the girl. Sean Connery is my dude. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, but to be honest, like I enjoy the each each generation of Bond is so... <sighs> There is a Venn diagram crossover for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But each one is so vastly different. And, you know, they reflect, totally. they reflect the times and they kind of reflect us, honestly, the, the vibe of us as a people. And I think a lot yeah, of that, totally. a lot of that also works for Star Trek. We've seen where, you know, in the eighties with TNG, things were a lot different. There was a counselor on board. Mental health was becoming, right. was, was yeah. moving towards, you know, the forefront of people's conscious consciousness. And now with new, with new, new Trek, <laughs> we've got things where there's a psychologist in charge of the ship's computer uh, played wonderfully by David Cronenberg. But yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating it's such a fascinating time to be a Trek fan. And when I say a Trek fan, I'm talking about the franchise as a whole, like to see the breadth right, of the progression. that history. Yeah. And yeah. It, not only the breadth of the history within the franchise, but also as it is reflective of the time it was produced. Right. And, and they've all tried to be groundbreaking in their own way. And I like that, that they introduced new things. I mean, uh, you know, data was a, an artificial intelligence at a time when that was just kind of becoming a thing. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and I like too. I just saw, and I love this, that uh, there was an episode of the original series um, where uh, something happened to, I guess it would have been Sulu. And so, uh, so Captain Kirk just calls for uh, Uhura to take the helm. And she just jumps up out of her chair, goes over, sits down and takes the helm. Yeah. There was no, oh, look, we've got a woman at the helm, you know, like there was none of that kind of stuff. She just did her damn job, you know, like, and, and, and that was, you know, like, and at the time, you know, now nobody about an eyelash, but you got to know that back in the sixties, yep. it was like, what, you know, oh, like, yeah. well, I, yeah. you know, for, for. <laughs> Even just in the standard setting for an African-American woman to quite literally have the captain's ear for the entire series, uh, pretty much. Not all, And then to have a... And his lips at one point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, to have a Russian sitting next to a Japanese pilot, you know, right around the right. Cold War, not long after World War II. Like Star Trek, the original series broke huge huge ground and i think from younger generations and i'll say i to a degree i was part of that for a while until i started diving a little bit deeper where it's hard to take it seriously there was a big camp factor in the 60s for sure yeah but you know i always am quick to say hey look yeah cheesy sets cheesy costumes like overacting a lot of it yeah <laughs> but look at the story that they were telling it was those things, those scripts stand on their own, you know, and they were really doing groundbreaking things in terms of their commentary on government, religion, social issues of the day of that are still relevant right. today. Yeah. So, um, you the know, monetary system. 
Exactly. Exactly. Oh man. Yeah. It's any one of those aspects you could spend hours and hours unpacking, but let's look at the prequel. Uh, uh, one of the prequels to the, to TOS <laughs> enterprise. What was your, what was your first experience with enterprise? Do you recall? I knew it was coming and I was awaiting. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, well, to me at the time, like, uh, because when did that, did that came out after Voyager? Yes, it came it was out the next 2000, one that was done. 2002. Uh, few, uh, yeah, it got started in 2002, um, just a few weeks after 9-11. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. And so I I knew it was coming and I was intrigued by the premise. It was like, you know, Star Trek without all the, the Star Tech. Yeah. Like, let's see where this is going. Right. Oh, yeah. So I was waiting for it. And so in the first couple episodes, I was like, oh, well, we'll give him a chance. You know, let's see where this is going, you know. And um, and and it did it did show a lot of promise for a while, especially in the first couple seasons. But there uh, there did I have to admit that there came a point for me where it became kind of background fodder, where mm-hmm. it was just you know I I'd be you know I'd have it on you know while it was and I'd make sure that I was in front of the TV when it was on, um, but I'd be you know engaged in something else and kind of watching it peripherally. But I did uh, I really wanted it to be good because I wanted to see all that uh, Star Trek stuff um yeah you know free teleporters and and all that stuff exactly red yeah. alert red alert doesn't part of, exist like right. they, they have pockets <laughs> right and and that's part of actually what disappointed me in it later on was because like for example the first time they decide to use the teleporter to teleport you know organic matter a person right it just flies and they're like oh whoa that, that. so it was like has nobody turned that dial on the on the board before like you know like <laughs> come on like you know it shouldn't have been that easy had exactly. i written that i would have written in a, a like a main character whose purpose was to die the first time the transporter got used <laughs> and i'm not talking about like oh he got lost in the buffer or anything like that i'm talking like end of the movie brundle fly, fly stuff man like <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh yeah, man well I, some of the some of the, some of the <laughs> well then uh, it became you know like oh my god yeah you know like this this isn't you know it would have been much more engaged you know maybe we don't have to do the brundlefly thing but it could have been so much more exciting than just like oh that totally flew okay on with the story you know like come on right <laughs> oh man yeah. yeah i think there was definitely room to have something like that happen i know one of the uh, aspects of some of the more recent narratives that I've enjoyed in comics, television, in comics and television, just because most of those things are serialized or, you know, chapter by chapter narratives that, um, you know, having, having, getting attached to a character and right. having that character's death mean something. It doesn't have to be a big something, but something that, uh, is memorable and propels at least the plot forward. Maybe not the story, but definitely the plot. Um, I, that, I think that's one of the reasons, I think that's one of the reasons shows like The Walking Dead did so well. The stakes were incredibly high right off the bat. Yeah. You identified- And they stayed like that for a long time. Exactly. You, you identified with at least one character or at least were in their corner rooting for them but nobody was safe nobody and you you just didn't know who was going to who was going to win who was going <laughs> to lose who was going to survive and i think that that was really big i recall 
I recall a comic book series called Stormwatch Team Achilles. It came from DC Comics from uh, from their uh, Wildstorm imprint. Yep, and uh, it was sort of a uh, UN based uh, a UN based superhero police force uh, tasked with tasked with policing superheroes, and um, you know they had this great motley crew of you know uh, very ragtag military folks that you just kind of were like oh this is like dirty dozen this is oceans 11 but in superhero form and this is so cool and i don't think i don't think a year went by that i don't think we were out of that first year of that of that run on that story where a major character bit the dust and it was one of my favorite ones and i was floored by that i was just i couldn't couldn't believe it but i was like yeah Yeah. it got that it it rang that bell for me it got that emotion out of me have you as long as they don't resurrect the character later on because that's uh that's a pet peeve of mine but uh yeah dead is dead but uh yeah well i was gonna ask you in terms in terms of character deaths how do you feel about putting the axe to one of your creations uh you know again i haven't gotten too far into uh um, into uh tritonis venture um you know on. what um i um like i said i do i do outline my stories i i know where the story is going however uh because i'm hitting plot points i don't always necessarily know how things are going to evolve from one plot point to the next so there's still as i'm writing it like so you know sometimes i'll be writing a certain character and i'll be like oh my god as if they did that you know like Yes. And and sometimes it's like, uh, you know, like that was amazing. Or sometimes it's like, oh my God, this character, you know, turning out to be an even, you know, bigger, uh, you know, colossal baddie than, uh, than I anticipated. Like, uh, but, um, but if it, if it moves the story forward in a compelling way, then yeah. Um, I have actually had people, uh, um, I saw someone that I hadn't seen in quite some time, and this was a person who's beta read for me. Um, oh, and if, if people don't know what the beta reading is, I write my manuscript, I polish it up, I send it out to some people that I trust with my work to get feedback on it, and uh, and then I take their uh, their opinions into account as I revise the story. And uh, anyways, I saw this guy, and I hadn't seen him for a while, and so uh, I was out shopping one day, and I see him, I'm like, hey, Mark, how's it going? And he points at me, and he goes, you. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, you killed this guy or whatever, right? Like, he was one of my favorite characters, and you killed him. I'm like... Dude had to die, man. I'm sorry. You know, like that's uh, that that was how the story played out. You know, I ne- didn't necessarily see it coming. I didn't plan for it to happen, but when it did, it looked like things were going that way. It was like, oh wow, you know, this is something that's going to make this story so much better. If if this because, like you say, if if a character like that can die, especially if it's uh, you know, like a you know halfway through a book or something, then you have to wonder like who's going to, if anybody is going to make it out of this story, Yep, yep. you know, and it keeps the tension up. Exactly. I think, uh, so let me ask you in terms of the, the stakes being high and with the structure of enterprise being essentially episodic for season one and two, and then leaning heavily towards serialized, a more Mm -hmm. serialized narrative with season three and four, do you have a preference of one or the other? 
Uh, you know what? If, uh, with Enterprise specifically, I think the episodic stuff was uh, was my preference. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you, so yeah. you so you prefer the standalone know. chapters? Yeah, because I don't know that in the the whole Zindi uh, um, plotline that the, that there was that there was enough stakes there. I mean, it was like, oh, the Earth is in jeopardy, but I never really felt it. You know, like it, it was like. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not even quite sure how to, but I, I never really got the sense that, uh, that there was a chance that this would fail. Yeah. I think honestly, the Zindi, the Zindi war arc is actually really great as maybe a mini series, maybe not necessarily a full season. We're talking I agree. 23, 24 episodes. That's a long time to it. I mean, don't get me wrong. You look at things like Battlestar Galactica where it was this ongoing yeah it's amazing um but this ongoing thing uh but that was very strictly serialized whereas enterprise here we are drawing to the end of season three of enterprise where season three is kind of there's it's the zindi war arc but it's more of like okay here's a three episode chapter here's a two episode chapter and it's kind of back and forth with that. So the plot is moving forward and the overarching story is still progressing, but at the end of it, it's kind of just overdone. Yeah. It's over, yeah, it's I, overdrawn out. I totally agree. You know what? This whole Zindi uh, storyline uh, would have been fantastic as like six to 10 episodes of like the, the meatiest part of it just uh just kind of boiled down to its essence rather than than dragging stuff out that uh that really wasn't that interesting honestly yeah yeah so here we are with this and we've got uh you know finally we've seen these uh we've seen these zindi uh council members in shadow and of course now we're actually getting to interact with them quite a bit and uh we've got some interesting things happening here especially with this goal of stopping the the big goal is stopping the destruction of earth that is our primary goal um and here it's it's really starting to come to a head but before we get into it let's get to this week's recap brought to you in part by our patreon supporters rev j and jerry antimano spoiler alert spoiler alert spoiler alert they will gamble their lives to win back the world help me save my people some will not return all new star trek enterprise Needing a third species codes to arm the weapon, Zindi reptilians inject their prisoner, Hoshi, with neural parasites. With the Zindi superweapon about to be armed and time running out, Archer tries to persuade the Zindi aquatics to help him and his Zindi allies destroy it. Hoshi's kidnapping and Archer's promises to shut down the 70-plus known spheres, initially a partial desperate bluff, finally convinces the aquatics into believing that the sphere builders and not the humans may indeed represent their true enemy. A battle between Archer's Zindi fleet and the reptilian insectoid fleet soon breaks out 
around the super weapon. Uh, there was a firefight! Locating Hoshi on board a reptilian ship, a small squad of Makos led by Major Hayes and the support of Reed transports on board the ship to extract her. With the space battle ongoing, the transporter system is damaged so that no more than two personnel can beam out at a time. Holding off the reptilians on the ship, Hayes sends one of his men and Hoshi out first, and then the rest of the team. But just as Hayes, now alone, is beaming out, a reptilian soldier fires through his chest. Back on Enterprise, Hayes tells Reed who his successor should be, moments before he dies. With the threads of time turning against them, the sphere builders decide to intervene by creating spatial distortions around the weapon. And so on. The distortions hinder Enterprise and the rest of Archer's Zindi fleet and destroy a number of aquatic ships, which buys the reptilians enough time to activate the codes. I need the codes. Dolem has the superweapon enter a vortex and head for Earth, escorted by two allied ships. Inside one of the vessels, having witnessed the interference of the Guardians, the insectoid leader begins to doubt the motives of the Reptilians. Since the Reptilians already have the Insectoid's launch code, Dolem destroys the Insectoid ship. <laughs> Far behind via the Vortex, and needing to close the distance with speed, Archer takes a Zindi recommendation to pursue Dolem using Degra's faster ship, taking a sickened Hoshi with his team to guide them through the superweapon. Oh, that's interesting. So this is really kind of a culmination of a lot of things, be it uh, action and Archer's desperation. And we see uh, Reed and the Makos, which those relationships have been very volatile uh, since they came on board. Um, What were your initial thoughts uh, upon watching this particular chapter of the Zindi War unfold? Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, the Lieutenant Reed and the, uh, the whole, uh, Mako thing was like the guy, like he just, he tries way too hard to explain himself all the time. It's always like, Hey, Hey, I hope I didn't offend anybody. And I didn't mean to, you know, you know, <laughs> I think, and he, I think that somewhere on the enterprise, there's a loose panel on a wall somewhere that every once in a while, Lieutenant Reed pulls off the panel, pulls out his dead Mako rubber stamp puts another one on the panel and puts it back in <laughs> whatever, and then, and then, and then totters off to, to do his thing. But he's always trying to explain how people's death wasn't his fault. And it's like, let it go, dude. Yeah. You're in a war, you know? Yeah. yeah for, for, for it, to die. it does seem out of character for someone who has such an extensive military background as Reed does. Right. And he seems to toggle it back and forth between being this highly competent um, the tactical officer and being this whiny, just, um, how do I like, I, he, he's just, he's annoying. He like, he, he, he's the, he's the most, he's the most wussy security chief in the history of Starfleet. I think like, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that like Scotty could kick his ass. I, Dr. Crusher could probably take a round out of him, you know, like you know? there should be like R- Lieutenant Reed bum fights where like everybody just gets to take a pot shot, you know, whatever. But, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I, that, that character just doesn't, I don't know. But then he turns around, you know, like, and, and he'll, you know, like at the end, Archer asks him, you know, like, 
you know, hey, well, like they just taken a hit in the in the in the fight at the end. And uh, Reed looks him at, at him and he goes, "We've taken a hit to one of our nacelles, I, I think he says, uh, but we're still in this fight." You know, and and he just says it so confidently and so you know that it's kind of uh it's so disparate from from him you know like oh please don't hate me you know like what you know but i think archer should around you know turned around and said well yeah you know what i saw you take a beating in the hallway the other day and didn't know when to you know when to just stay down so i don't know if i'm gonna (laughs) exactly oh man uh do you think that uh how did you feel about the addressing the dead haze and just kind of him sort of stepping up because at this point in star trek there's no such thing as red shirts it's basically tactical combining with mako's to form the security department of starfleet whatever yeah 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 um you know how do you how do you feel like that was handled because I kind of, it was, it was good, but there were other times throughout the series where Reed's done something or, or trip for sure had done something where it's like, that requires you handing a pip to your commanding officer. Like (laughs) you're going down in ranks, sir, at least, at least one pip worth. Um, Yeah. But how do you feel like this was handled? Yeah, again, you know, I, uh, it, it, the, that's one thing that kind of got me about this whole t- thing, too, was the, the uh, I didn't see it as being consistent. And so this is one of the points where we toggle back to Reed being, you know, a, a, a tolerable human being, I guess, you know, and whatever. And he's, uh, you know, he's being uh, compassionate and he's being uh, professional and um, and. Yeah, but I just I, th- I think it gets overshadowed by a lot of the 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 ridiculous crap that's uh, gone on between them. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, sh- shifting, it's, it's, shift- it's almost like it's partly an apology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, shifting focus a little bit here. We talked uh, on this show before about season three really feeling like the writers have kind of had a chance to digest the events of nine eleven and are starting to put that into narrative. How do you feel about the betrayal and infighting amongst the Zindi council? Cause I found that to be, you know, they were so united for the longest time, at, at least. So we were led to believe, but here we see things are turning and turning fast. What are your thoughts about the, uh, the butting of heads, um, through through the uh, Zindi Council in this episode. Well, I think that's one of the actually better done parts of this, and and the really? reason that I kind of feel that way. Um, uh, one of my favorite authors of all time is Robert A. Heinlein. Uh, now, not everything he wrote was was brilliant, but uh, but enough of it was that I just I love the guy. But one of the things that he said in one of his books that is that any time that you have more than three people allied, somebody is going to betray you. Like a fourth or a fifth person, like somebody, and 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 that there's kind of a, a there's a certain symmetry to that, right? Where if yeah. you've got three people, like it, you always know who was responsible for what. You always know who did whatever it was. If it was if it wasn't me and it wasn't you, then it must be the third person, right? And 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 that kind of thing. But when you have was it five different species or six six. Uh, five, but that, but we find out that there was a sixth that oh, there was has, a sixth. Has, has gone extinct. Right. Yeah. 
And so I think I think that it was uh, it, it should have happened mm. that the that the council should have fallen apart. There's no way that uh, uh, five so um, uh, so diverse uh, cultures or whatever could just remain unified uh, for that duration, especially with that much stress on them and that much at stake for them. Because you got to remember, as much as they're the antagonists in season three. Um, they're the heroes of their own story and they believe in what they're doing. Right. Oh yeah. And, um, and so I, I think it had to fall apart. Had it yeah. gone right through to the end with them just being unified right to the end, I would have been like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so in looking at the, uh, the crumbling of the empire from within, uh, I think about two different films, um, dark Knight, where we see the three, the three man structure, you know, you've got Harvey Dent, you've got, um, <clears throat> you've got Jim Gordon, you've got Batman and they're, and to be honest, that really should have worked, but, um, you know, they, they Batman points it out and he targeted Harvey because he was the best, he was the best of them. And if he knew if he could take him out, the other two would fall. Um, yeah. but also the wife and I just finished watching, or I should say rewatching last night, the Godfather. And looking at different betrayals within the five families that lead to many, many very gruesome deaths <laughs> and uh, that power struggle, uh, that power struggle from young Michael Corleone, uh, who just seems to really have a bead on uh, on the the nature of the people within his family. And their interactions with the other families. Uh, there's no shortage of videos on YouTube of therapist reacts to or body language expert <laughs> reacts to. I'll have to yeah. see if I can find some of uh, you know those types of reactions to Al Pacino's performance as Michael Corleone because him watching certain interact he he can see it coming a, a mile away and i wonder if you know if that was a thought because of his military experience or and again i haven't uh re-watched uh part two or part three but you know just looking at part one as a whole and of course the wife the wife and i have also just finished watching the offer i don't know if you've seen or are no, aware i haven't of the seen offer. that and i haven't i haven't seen the godfather in eons and i have and i haven't seen the offer no i i highly recommend checking out the offer available now on paramount plus um because it is it is albert ruddy albert s ruddy's story of the production of the godfather from him becoming a producer at paramount uh, acquiring Mario Puzo's novel and the, everything that they dealt with in the production. It is a fascinating story. I hope it wins all of the awards. Um, but of course, after we finished that final episode, the 10th episode, uh, the wife was like, well, we kind of have to watch the Godfather now. <laughs> I was like, I was like, you got it, babe. And I pressed play. Yeah, and no all problem. right. I was like, you remember it's over three hours, right? <laughs> and it was already like getting late. But uh, but yeah, those power struggles are so fascinating to look at. Um, I, you know, and it just dawned on me uh another power struggle and betrayal from within Jesus Christ and the 12 disciples, you know, right. Judas uh betraying him. Peter denying him, you know, and all of these things uh, is, is so fascinating. Um, 
but yeah, I was really fascinated by uh, this. The reptilian sort of really took charge. He kind of reminded me of like Nicholson in A Few Good Men of like, this has to be done. You need me on that wall. Um, but yeah, any other thoughts about uh, any other thoughts about this episode uh, before we move into our uh, baseball card stats? Well, uh, yeah. Well, the other dynamic that kind of got was um, the extra dimensionals, right? That um, yes, that uh, yeah. even even the reptilians kind of stepped up toward the end and, uh, and 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 brought things to the forefront and you know probably questions that everybody had and nobody had ever said and uh, and I thought that was good that they did that too because they couldn't have been that blind right and so the um you know the the reptilian brings it up and of course he gets the uh Jareth, the goblin king speech from labyrinth or whatever of you know how you know yes i've tortured and manipulated you through all of this or whatever but how dare you call me on it <laughs> you know what right, i'm talking right yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah everything i've done i've done for you and she says that, like, what are you talking about? Like, we have we have done all of this to save your people when, you know, it becomes glaringly apparent that uh, it's been self-serving the whole time. Well, you know, as a collective that they've been doing this to for their own ends. Yeah. Well, you know, part of one of the things we, we had with a recent guest, uh, comedian Mike Kaplan was on the show and we uh dive well it was deep for me it might not have been as deep for him maybe not as deep for actual practicing buddhists but we actually uh took a little a look at buddhism and i know one of the big things with buddhism is actually questioning the beliefs and questioning oh cool why, why we why we why are we worshiping why are we you know uh, subservient to this entity whatever it is and uh, I think it's, you know, I think this might also be sort of a cautionary tale for folks who are taking a look at, again, 9-11 and some of the conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11 and saying, hey, look, we're not saying one way or the, one way or another, but it deserves a second look. It deserves. Yeah, can we question it? Can we question some things? Can we start looking within since empires crumble from within? Let's start looking within, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, and I, I, I think I may end up uh, taking a look at uh, maybe setting up a religious discussion episode. We've had, we've had a couple of um, folks who are heavily involved in uh practice of religion be it uh from a leadership standpoint or uh as you know uh scholars or theologians but uh you know the religion of star trek uh, well religion in general and how it relates to star trek i think right. of uh kevin c niece uh the author of the gospel according to star trek who has been on the who has been on the show and uh he and i had a really fascinating discussion about many things related to star trek and religion and i think there's Our, definitely some some parallels to be drawn uh between i'll just say religion in general i won't say any one particular religion but um you know that and this narrative that holds a mirror up to us as a uh, as a society but also a as a society yeah, yeah 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 so um let's uh let's take a look at some of the things that we uh you know 
when we look at an episode, be it good or bad, there's always the question, and we ask this question every week, who do we blame? Uh, this episode was written by Andre Bormanis and Chris Black. Andre Bormanis, his last work was season three, episode 17, Hatchery, which we discussed, as I mentioned, with comedian Mike Kaplan back on episode 63. And Chris Black, his last work on the series was season three, episode 20, The Forgotten, which was directed by LeVar Burton, a.k.a. Jordy LaForge, which we discussed with podcaster Drew Burris on episode 66. And this episode was directed by Robert Duncan McNeil, a.k.a. Tom Paris. Uh, his last directing was season three, episode eight, Twilight, which we discussed uh, also with Drew Burris on episode 53. Drew Burris getting a lot of getting <laughs> a lot of love this episode. Uh, the guest stars, we've seen a lot of these folks over the course of season three. Uh, Scott McDonald as Commander Dolom, Rick Worthy as uh, Janar, the unkillable Tucker Smallwood as a Zindi primate counselor, Stephen Culp, of course, as Major Hayes. And uh, Mary Mara, we mentioned last week as one of the sphere builder presages. Uh, but then we've got Mr. Bruce Thomas, who plays Zindi Reptilian Soldier. Now, that's not a very, he doesn't get a whole lot of love in this episode, but he is a character actor. And I think he's worth uh, taking a look at his resume. His first credit was a favorite of mine army of darkness he played mini ash number two from 1992 That's uh, awesome. the sequel army of darkness of course the sequel to evil dead 2 which of course is the sequel to evil dead of course all starring the wonderful mr bruce campbell which how bruce campbell hasn't made it into a star trek episode is i would love to see him come on board groovy if you had to cast bruce as something in the star trek universe do you go is he an admiral is he a captain is he maybe an orion or maybe uh oh you know, god because he i can't see him as a vulcan i just can't i i don't know that's no that's, that's not, not that's not bruce point. no that's not happening at all you know what he kind of um remember in the original series there was that uh that salesman that used to show up all the time, the guy that sold the Kirk, the, or the, the, the tribbles to the, and wasn't he in the one where it was all of the, uh, was it mud? Women? Yeah. Mud? Fenton yeah. Mud. Oh yeah, totally. Oh my yeah. God. If you were to, if you were to bring that character back and plug Bruce Campbell into that, that's like perfect, man. <laughs> well, I, I 100% fully agree. He would have made an excellent Fenton mud. Um, are you familiar? Are you familiar with the office? The, the U S version of the office? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's an actor on the office, rain Wilson, who has been cast and played Fenton mud in new, new Trek. He made his first appearance in star Trek discovery and he's doing well. And a lot of people are just like, Oh, he's great. But I had never even thought Bruce Campbell. And now that I look at rain Wilson versus <laughs> Bruce Campbell, I got to say, like, I would really love to see Campbell. <laughs> Sorry if I wrecked it for you, man. No, no, it's okay. That, that, that's one of the things I love is just kind of, especially with creative folks who watch a thing and go, man, this is great, but you know, it would be even better. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
every time I, I was, because I would, I did watch leading up to episode 23 to yeah. get to some of the background. Right. And every time I saw the name Stephen Culp come up, I meant to look and I did not. Is that the son of Robert Culp? That's a good question. Isn't it? And I, like I said, I thought I would, I thought of it every time I saw the name and, uh, and I mean, they, they kind of have a similar, but uh, Robert Culp, of course, was, um, um, wasn't he in the greatest American hero? Uh, I you remember that? Maybe. Let's see. I've got Stephen Culp pulled up here. Mm, I don't see anything about. Oh, here's about his parents. No, he was uh, the son of oh, okay. Mary Ann and Joseph Franklin Culp. Oh, okay. So no, just a just a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> but a but a good pull though. That would have been that would have been really fascinating. We've that seen drove me nuts every time, and I I forgot every time though to check it out. So okay, there we go. No, he's not. We've seen a couple of Hollywood legacies pop up in these episodes of Enterprise. Uh, Temporal Agent Daniels, you must have seen Temporal right. Agent Daniels, yes. uh, played by um, oh, and now I forget his first name, but he is the son of legendary uh, creature creator Stan Winston. No uh, way. Yeah, that's his that's his boy. Yeah. yeah. And he does a great job as Daniels. I love him as Daniels. Yeah. Uh but Matt, back to Mr. Bruce Thomas here. He uh after Army of Dark Darkness, he did uh some one-offs and a couple four or five episode runs on some soaps. Uh but he is known primarily as the UPS guy from Legally Blonde and Legally Blonde 2. <laughs> And also, as a big Batman fan, I can't let this go. He actually appeared in the Birds of Prey premiere in 2002 as Batman. So he might not get a lot of love uh, in terms of actors who have played the live action Batman. But nerds, you got to have you got to add Bruce Thomas <laughs> to your list. He he played him. He at least once. So, well, he actually played him in a couple of. On Star commercials in 2000. Oh, was that him too? Yeah, as I remember in Birds of Prey, Batman was briefly was in there. Like it wasn't very briefly. Yeah, yeah very briefly. But uh, yeah. Oh, but, no way. Yeah, but this is actually his second of third appearances on Enterprise. His last appearance was actually last week's episode, but we covered uh, Mary Mara and uh, and her resume. Uh, not long after this, uh, he would do 43 episodes of Kyle XY as Steven Traeger on, uh, from 2006 to 2009. But his other big claim to fame here is he is the mocap actor, uh, mocap standing for motion capture, uh, where they wear all the ping pong balls on their body. Yeah. Uh, he is the mocap actor for Master Chief in Halo 4 from 2012, Halo 5 from 2015, and Halo Infinite from 2021. So not a bad little resume to have. So Daniel McMillan, let me ask you the question uh, that we ask every week. Is this episode countdown? Is this essential viewing? If somebody's if somebody's watching Star Trek for the first time, is this one that they can't miss in in the in terms of the plot or in ter- or in any other aspect? I think if somebody's just starting out with Enterprise, season three is not the place to jump in at all. Right. Um, but if but if you're watching season three, I think there are there are episodes that you can kind of gloss over, but this isn't one of them. Mm. There's too much. Uh, there's too much setup. There's too much. This is where. 
Um, you know, like I said, if, if, if this had been done in six or 10 episodes, like in a, in a crunch, a lot of what is in this episode would have had to be in there. So yeah, if you're doing the Zindi thing, got to do it. Otherwise, not so much. Yeah. If you're, if you, you can kind of pick and choose from season one and two of like, okay, here's a Archer episode. Here's a Paul episode. Here's a Travis episode here. You know, you can kind of get one for each of the cast and then kind of skip to that season two finale, which is where the whole Zindi war starts. Uh, but once you hit that season two finale, mm-hmm. it's kind of all or nothing really. Yeah. You're in it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, uh, any final thoughts? Thank you so much for coming on the show and, and uh, being so willing to uh, talk about this very uh, volatile. No, very um <laughs> Um, under, I think it's underrated uh, period of Star Trek history. Uh, but do you have any final thoughts about this episode, the franchise as a whole, or your experience on this podcast? Um, in terms of the, uh, in terms of Enterprise as a show, um, I, you know what? I I like it. I mean, there's there's enough there's enough there that uh, that I, I think it's worth watching, and I I do kind of. Uh, uh, it doesn't hold the same um, place in my heart as uh, as Next Generation or uh, uh, or even the like. I I loved uh, First Contact, the movie. Uh, that's a watcher, you know. Like that's something that I'll watch again and again and again. Um, but uh, but I think Enterprise is, is worth watching if you if you're into Star Trek um, more so than some of the other shows, maybe even. But uh, it's not definitely not top of the list. But I don't think it's near the bottom either um franchise as a whole i said i love that they can i i love that they and i i haven't seen the new ones uh, i i should but uh you that's know, it um, you heard him boys get him <laughs> <laughs> but uh <laughs> but uh it um the franchise i hope they're still pushing things i hope they're still making us take that long look at ourselves as people i hope that they're still you know calling humanity on their crap you know i hope that they're still um you know being introspective and and uh and thoughtful and and that they're still being hopeful because there are times in star trek when i'm like ooh you know like you know this is supposed to be about humanity becoming something better than they are and uh you know, and I don't think this really reflects on that quite so much, but uh, but I, I think Enterprise does. But it's that starting point, you know. The characters are fresh off the earth. They still hold some of the. They're still prejudiced um, in a lot of ways. They Very still much, there's still yeah. a lot of division, yeah. and uh, and these are things that in later incarnations have been largely overcome. And so I think it's uh, I think it's interesting in the overall show to show where the beginning of the transition from, from us monkey people to, you know, like the future, you know, spacefaring uh, people that we can be. Cause I mean, when it comes to humans going to space, you know, basically we can be one of two things. We can be, uh, you know, the, the aliens that we always hope would show up here, or we can be the aliens that we always dreaded showing up here. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Very well said. Very well said. I, uh, you mentioned you mentioned that uh, Enterprise doesn't hold uh, as high a spot in your heart as uh, some other versions of Trek. But let me ask you, um, in terms of things in your heart, do you happen to have? Uh, do you consider 
yourself having faith of the heart? Do you do you have faith of the heart? <laughs> uh, oh God. Um I, yeah, you we know, can't I, get away I, from I Enterprise really without discussing the the theme song, at least at least. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, you know what then? Um and I actually showed to her uh um last night or the night before it was like okay here's an episode one and here's the the you know the the marginally tolerable theme yeah okay you know and and now here we are in season three and it's got that jangity jang jang guitar in it and whatever and yeah. uh and i looked and it is actually not stevie nicks playing the tambourine i was kind of hoping it was but it's not. <laughs> and uh and you know the only thing that they could have done to make that worse was what the, exactly what they did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I am always quick to say, you know, it, it it is definitely an earworm. Like if you if you let it, it will permeate your brain for at least twenty four hours for sure. But I definitely, uh, I definitely like the season one and two version as opposed to yeah. three and four. I kind of wish that they would, yeah, they I, I kind of wish that they had taken that song or Archer's theme, whichever, and let it reflect the mood of the episode. And I mean, as much as I love the visuals of the opening title sequence. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Um, I do kind of wish that in some instances they had, they would have leaned heavier on the vibe of that story to reflect it because there's times where like it's super hard and super heavy and super dark. And then here's this little jaunty tune. Like it doesn't <laughs> fit, man. It just no. doesn't fit. Well, and I think that's why an orchestral theme is uh, lends itself so well to these kinds of shows. I mean, couldn't have done it with BSG either. You know what? <laughs> the only the, okay. Now correct me if you think I'm wrong, Todd, but the only time that I can think of a theme song with lyrics that worked for a sci-fi show was Firefly. Bingo. I was I was like, he's about to say Firefly. <laughs> <laughs> it is such that's such a banger, man. I, I I'll play that in my in my car stereo anytime. If if someone's <laughs> like, well, what should we listen to? There's, you know, classic vinyl, you know, station on XM, or you know, maybe some uh some 90s or something. Oh, oh, hey, there's this one channel where it's just the fire fly theme on repeat i'll be like, over and over yeah let's let's go ahead and put that on for a while <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> well next week we will be joined by my good friend photographer and visual artist mr john paul newton uh for enterprise season three episode 24 zero hour which of course is available exclusively on paramount plus i'm looking forward to talking to jp again uh his last time uh on the show was actually our fantasy draft episode from january of this year so it'll be good to catch up with him daniel where can people find your writings and support what you've got going on um if you're looking for me on facebook you can find me uh, at daniel mcmillan author and uh if you're looking for something to read i've got one link that uh, links to everything i've ever written and everything i ever will write in every format it's available in and you can find that at books Number two, read.com slash RL slash Daniel McMillan. So that's books to read.com slash RL reading list slash Daniel McMillan. And everything that I have written or ever will write will be available through that one link on every platform it's available on. Awesome. And where can people bother you on the internet? Oh, just don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, no, actually, you can visit my website at uh, vector11studio.com. 
And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials from all of us at the Computer Resume Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you at 10 forward. Like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume Podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop. And our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn. And the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We've probably got some phasers and shuttle pods. And we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?